Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Brent Barkus of I-65 Music in Nashville. Brent, how are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me. Brent is a musician and composer and guitarist and engineer and producer and doing some really interesting things down in Nashville, and I'm thrilled to have him here on the podcast. So, Brent, I, I wanted to start, first of all, regarding music. Tell me a little bit how you started in music and what was your inspiration to pick up a guitar and, and what those early years were like? Well, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in St. Louis and I have an older brother that's a drummer, six years older. And I think it just started with, obviously, you know, my parents were uh, big music uh, listeners, weren't musicians, didn't have instruments in the house, but loved music, had, were in dance groups and, you know, growing up. And so there was always fun music in the house. And I think when my brother got a drum set when he was a kid, I, you know, they were kind enough to let him bang around and, and it was a super loud house. And I kind of got the bug watching him join bands in high school and so I picked up a guitar like uh, sixth grade, and my mom and dad said, hey, well, if you're interested in this, let's do some private lessons. So kind of started from that, and my mom and dad faithfully letting me on Saturday mornings, taking me and doing a private lesson, and it just kind of grew from there. I, you know, got some friends, and, you know, just the typical fun 80s pop music band, learning covers and playing dances and battle of the bands and you know, and learning a little bit of theory and, and doing a lot of ear training with just, you know, playing to the radio and, and just sitting on the end of, end of my bed, really, just trying to figure out what all the, the great guitar players were doing and just trying to, you know, pick out the licks. And and it really stuck. And I, you know, I did play sports and was heavily involved. But when high school came, it kind of, I didn't have my growth spurred and, I, and the sports thing kind of faded. So I just kind of felt like, well, I needed something to, you know, kind of gravitate towards and guitar was that. So I just kind of stuck with it. And kind of took me through high school, and I, it's kind of really became my, you know, identity of sorts, just to have, you know, all kids look for something to, to do, so kind of took off there, and then from there it got more serious as I got closer to graduating, and that's how I kind of ended up in Nashville. So tell me, you mentioned, you know, your inspiration and learning licks and sitting on the end of your bed kind of figuring out tunes, right? So give me a little glimpse into that. Who are some of those idols or those rock gods, the guitar gods that yeah. inspired you? I really loved 80s. I mean, you know, it was my era. So, you know, I, I was really into kind of the session guitar players. I loved Steve Lukather from Toto. And and I was I was kind of a, a liner notes kid. I loved to see who played on the, you know, the most recent Duran Duran. You know, I liked pop. I liked pop rock. And so early on, I, I really didn't dive into going back where those guys got their influence until later and maybe more in my later high school or college years. But earlier on, it was more just you know, I, I started seeing names like Dan Huff, you know, Steve Lukather, guys out in L.A. that were Jay Graydon and Larry Carlton. Some of these guys were playing on early pop records and Madonna or whatever. And loving Paul Jackson Jr. was another one. And just really loving kind of hearing about these guys that were moving around from studio to studio every day playing on all these pop records. So 
kind of out of that. Just I don't know if I remember Columbia Records and Tapes that early sure. on. Just uh, <laughs> you for get a all penny, those right? You had to things like in the mail. Send in the penny or whatever that was. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, you end up with all these cassettes. And I would just I had my little box there, you know, my jam box, and I just try to send. You know, then you get into trying to slow stuff down and. We would try to wire stuff out of phase, try to hear what guys were playing because they might be oh, you yeah. know, kind of down in the mix, you know, so we want to hear it on one side. And we try to do everything just to kind of hear and hear and try to figure out some of the stuff that was going on. So so mainly session guys. That, that was kind of it for me, session guys at first. Well, look at Lukather. I mean, the guy plays everything. And, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he's not just playing three-chord stuff. I mean, he's all over the place. Yeah, I remember he had an instructional video. It was on VHS when it first came out, mm-hmm, and I, sure. I remember ordering that and I think it was called hot licks or something you know one of yep. these companies but something like that but I remember sitting in my uh, family with my dad and he's like you're gonna do that you know I mean he was just so great you know and I was like I don't know but I, I love what he's doing <laughs> you know just trying to figure out what he was playing he had all the gear behind him you know and it just looked so cool yeah and uh, incredible yeah. incredible tone always a master oh, of, man. of the gear yeah and just it was creative and you know they were you know at that time obviously LA was such a happening scene for all those records going on. So yeah. obviously things have hugely changed, but that's the way it was then. So well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit today about the music business and sort of the scenes nationally. Before we get off that topic of '80s music, since you mentioned Duran Duran, a lot of people think of Duran as you know Hunger Like the Wolf and these very synth heavy records. But I was a big fan. I went to their '80s concerts. And I'll share this with you. I'll ask you your opinion about this. Andy Taylor was kind of hidden in the mix of that band and was a shredding guitar player. Yeah, he was. I haven't read his book. I've seen it, you know, and I haven't read his story. But, you know, and then I've gone back and watched the Live Aid stuff. And he was trying. You could tell he was made it more rock in the live show, you know, Mm -hmm. so. Reflex and all that. He was crunching away, you know, and trying. So maybe the records, you know, maybe they toned it down. But uh, live, he definitely. And then I went and saw, you remember Power Station? They came out sure, as of kind of just John and Andy. Yep, Robert Palmer, but and, he didn't uh, tour. Yeah, right? I saw Palmer them. Didn't go yeah, right. Tour. Saw it with Michael DeBars, I think, yep. or, and saw them on tour. And, and that was a little edgier. You know, I was I loved that record. That was a great record. Sure. So, Tony Thompson. and Tony Thompson. The late, great, actually, Tony Thompson. Yes, lost that's him right. Way too young. Yep. We're currently working on a Power Station documentary, meaning about the recording oh, wow. studio, which, of course, the band is named after that. Yeah. And absolutely a a power quartet, that band. And when I saw Duran Duran in whatever that was, I think, 83, it was the Seven and the Ragged Tiger tour, which was right on top, nice. right behind the Rio tour. And yeah. that was my takeaway was Andy was shredding. He came out and I yep. just you know, wow, that, that guy's not on these records. Who is this guitar? You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, speaking of, of records, I want to make the connection of, so you end up in Nashville and I know a, uh, an important figure and factor in your career is connecting with Mutt Lang. Right. So can you tell me about connecting with him? And for our listeners, I would like to set this up a little bit because Mutt Lang is a, a well-known producer of records, and I'm going to give a, a quick laundry list of big acts, including yeah. Foreigner, Def Leppard, ACDC, Brian Adams, The Cars, Nickelback, Muse. I mean, he's got a, a hundreds of millions of albums with his hands on them. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. and well known for his particular production technique. So I, I'd really love to hear about your story connecting with, with Mutt and how he really influenced you as a musician and as a producer. 
Well, it's wild. You know, I I came to Nashville to go to college, a little campus here called Belmont University. It's, it's not little anymore. It was at the time. It was a little, it was just called Belmont College. Now it's a university, and they've always had a really good commercial music program. And, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out after high school, do I go to Berkeley? Do I try to get in at North Texas State? And I wasn't really a jazzer, so, and this is a step to how I eventually met Mutt, but uh, I met a guitar player back on tour, like my senior high school. His name was Chris Rodriguez. He was a great singer, session player, and he was out with, at the time, Amy Grant, which she was big at the time. And we had met somehow after a show at Six Flags in St. Louis. I had a friend that knew him, and you know, I said, oh, I'm trying to decide what to do. And he said, have you ever heard of Belmont and Nashville? I said, no. Well, I, you know, I've got my professor. He's still there. So I ended up here, meet the guitar professor. We hit it off. I get in. So I ended up studying here. And that kind of got me in, into Nashville. And so spent a few years in schools, living in the dorms. And it was really cool. It was, it was There were so many players, and we're all just kind of collaborating and jamming and learning from each other. And mm-hmm. And what was great about it was just being in, in a music town, you know, I feel like we all got kind of a head start on establishing, you know, kind of a presence in town. You start hearing about jobs and, and tours going on and who's auditioning and what artists are going out. And so as as we start to hear about things, we would get, get auditions. So, and let me go back. So early on in the early 90s when I got here, you were either in the country industry or you were part of a gospel Christian music world. That was mm-hmm. big here. Not as much now, but so you you kind of either played in two camps, you know, you, or you go to L.A. and you do pop, or you go to New York and you do pop and jazz. Or and I didn't grow up playing country music. I, I you know grew up in the Midwest, and I like I said I loved the pop music. So I kind of ended up going to the side of the Christian gospel world just because sonically and musically that's what my you know my tastes were. Uh, the guys that played on those records were the Dan Huffs and the Chris Rodriguez and Jeremy mm-hmm. McPherson. These are session guys that played on a lot, you know, Dan played on all the, a lot of 80s and, and Madonna, and then he would, sure. he had roots here in Nashville. His dad was an orchestra arranger, brilliant. And so Dan came out of the church here and then went to L.A. and ended up playing on all those big records and then later on moved back here. Well, that was my connection. I, Dan went to Belmont, where I went, and he would come and do some seminars, and, you know, all these top session guys would kind of mentor some of us and, and just give us advice. And, and Dan and Mutt struck up a really good friendship because Dan ended up playing a lot on the early Shania records but before that I think he'd played on the Bolton stuff you know there were some a Bolton record mm-hmm. and uh and, and maybe of course some you're, other, you're speaking others. of Shania Twain just to make that connection I'm sorry yes yeah. Shania Twain and so when Mutt decided to get into the country world and he met Shania Twain at this time still you know Nashville was still you played by country rules it, yep. it, there wasn't this whole pop because he was a part of obviously you know changing the face of where country went, but there he knew that for him to even get in the game of maybe creating a successful country album, he needed to come here and use the players here and and do it the way it kind of was still being done. So he did that, and Dan was not a typical country player, but he likes Dan's color. I mean, he used Mm -hmm. Dan, you know, obviously Dan had a thing, so Dan ended up playing on a lot of that early stuff in and out of all the, you know, overdubs and stuff, and so, you know, long story short, when it came time to put this on the road, my connection was Dan. Dan and Chris Rodriguez, who had known Mutt from some sessions, said, well, here's a couple guys, and kind of went from there. So then there's the crazy story of, you know, sending a tape, and <laughs> I don't want to go too long. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting. 
bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. There's a very important sort of nexus of topics here. And it's something I specifically wanted to get speaking to you about. I was speaking to a friend the other day, and we were talking about Nashville. A good friend of mine, a very talented drummer, was talking about moving there. And we were just talking about the current scene and how much it has changed. And what we were talking about is how traditional country, that has sort of become rock, you know? And the right. style of the players and, and the the style of the artists have moved away from, and I'm calling it traditional country. Now, there's lots of spinoffs, obviously. I'm oversimplifying. But Nashville has kind of moved that way in a style. And also, there have been these acts, and I think what you're speaking to is somewhat, Shania started this with Mutt, but we'll talk about that. That's going to be my question, yeah. which is... yeah. There are these acts that came out of Nashville, out of what was a country scene, but broke out. And, of course, people would use the phrase crossed over, but really changed the scene of what's coming out of Nashville. And I'm saying this, you and I are recording in July of 2018, and two nights ago, I just went to Taylor Swift at MetLife Stadium, uh, you know, whatever, 80,000 yeah. people, three Amazing. nights sold out. And... She also is an example of that as pop as you can get right now. Yeah. Her music, yeah. her her composition. And I would argue that Shania and Mutt's work started that. You were right there. And right. that that has led to acts like Taylor Swift, etc. So with that long explanation, tell me a little bit about having a front row seat to that change and also whether you agree with my description of all that. I totally agree. And it's wild to see that, you know, to see Taylor and, and obviously she does tip her hat. I know she tips her hat to the other artists that kind of plowed that ground for her. And, mm -hmm. and it was wild. I never imagined ever crossing over, you know, you say, I say crossover, but I really never thought that I would play in that world, the country world. It just wasn't, you know, like I said, at the time, early nineties to middle nineties, you played a telly, you probably wore it up really high, and you wore a hat and some boots, and I don't have the creased jeans, you know? It was all, yeah. it had a very stigma to it, and but Mutt's a genius, and he had a vision to, you know, I feel like the first Shania Twain record was um, Woman and Me. It's a beautiful record, and he, I know he told me, he said, I played by the rules enough to enter Nashville, and, and he loves country music. I know Mutz, he's, he's a historian, too, with music, so he knows all the old original artists and all that stuff. He just had studied it and was passionate about making country record. But it had, if you go back and listen, you know, it's definitely got his stamp on it. It's just he had a vision to, you know, go worldwide with it and expand, and he was, you know, call it a little bit of luck and timing and her, her being the perfect artist to do that. And then with his second album of Come On Over, I know there was, obviously there was a vision for kind of a world dominance when it comes to producing a record that had, after I think him proving that he made the first album and being country, 
he then then took the risk and then decided I'm going to make a, a country album, but then have versions, which this is brilliant. I could we could talk more about it, and made versions for mixes for all over the world, so that he knew that he had a chance at selling selling records oh, all wow. over the world and then going on the road with that. Wow, you know? that, that's fascinating. I mean, that's a glimpse and crossing all the crossing all the genres. You know, wow. Well, certainly, come on over was huge. I mean, as big as it gets, and yeah. and Shania was everywhere. Let's drill into working with Mutt a little bit. Mutt's known for a particular sound, at least certainly coming out of that real sure. pop stuff with Def Leppard and the vocal stacking and all of that. And as a guitar player and being around that world now, tell me a little bit more about how that has influenced you in the studio and as a performer. It does. It goes back. It's interesting. You know, me growing up learning parts and session players, mm. I felt like my past growing up, you know, it was almost like a perfect fit for what he was looking for. You know, I, I felt like that I was kind of the the kid, I guess, at the time that was willing to play in that role that he wanted. And so coming on board was kind of like, you know, he was very clear that you guys are going to play the exact parts. We're going to get the tones. We're going to have the gear that we used. I mean, he had documented all the equipment uh, from each patch to of wow. parts of sounds from each session guy from the record, so that we could <laughs> then you know pull that off. You know, so it was like we're learning parts note for note, and we're getting the gear that we need, and we're gonna go out and we're gonna rehearse for five months, and we're gonna make this. And there was a lot of pressure, you know, because uh, coming off um, Woman and Me, you know, they had this huge record and sold all these had all these sales, but they only had 12, I don't know if it was 12, 12 or 15 songs, can't remember what was on it. And yeah. so they opted not to tour off that because she'd gotten so large, you know, so big, but didn't have enough material to really go out and headline. So they, they made the call to maybe, they did some TV appearances, but they made the call to jump right back into recording and making Come On Over, 96, 97. Mm -hmm. And so then there was, you know, the skeptics were, she can't really sing, she can't tour, she doesn't know how to perform which wasn't true, it was just they didn't really feel like they had enough material to go out and, and do it the way they wanted to do it, you know, so, and then obviously with Come On Over coming out, that's when we all kind of came into the picture, and the, there was a lot of pressure to, to basically come out, and the uh, the whole concept of fall of, that's clear as day to me, fall of 97, I moved to New York, and uh, lived in the Adirondacks with them, and, and spent five, six months, all we did was just craft the music and the show. Basically, they, they felt like show number one, there were so many eyes that were going to be on it that it had to be like we'd already played 30 shows, you wow. know? Yeah. Show one couldn't be still getting, figuring out what we were doing, you know? He, they yeah. knew that it, they had to come out and make it be great. So it was. It was a, a daily 12, 15 hours, like, with Mutt in the room, just, like, going over every little nuance. So today it's my studio experience now. I, I think everything that I feel like I, I do now on a daily basis is goes through that, you know, what I've learned. And, and so sometimes I, I got to go, OK, you know, I need to not be so like over the top about my editing. And, you know, but I, mm. I, I come from that school, you know, because yeah. everything, you know, he 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 was always embraced technology, wherever it was at the time. And he used it for his benefit to get what he was wanting. So I still to this day use use all those things that I learned from him. Well, sure. I mean, some of that vocal sound is literally stacking of vocals over vocals. And I mean, you can only string together so many 48 track digital machines until you That's have to, right. got to do it with Pro Tools eventually. Yeah, yeah. It made his life so much easier than having to, you know, link all the machines together. Well, it's interesting to hear about that rehearsal process and how meticulous he is. I mean, that 
you know, that reputation follows him obviously from the studio and just that sound that he was producing. But to pass that on to someone such as yourself in context of a performance of bringing that experience out into the world, just the discipline and the meticulous nature of his approach and and how you were part of that obviously would have an effect on you. And that's fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, I had done, you know, we kind of skipped over a, a bunch of touring years of my life. And that's true. I and, jumped way forward. Uh, for no, a no, sense that's of okay. Time. That's okay. But, but all that kind of process of some of the tours I had done and recording and, and getting to know Dan and the session guys, you know, I was mm. really ready for, I mean, I was overwhelmed meeting the, this guy because I, obviously I knew a lot of those records. I grew up on Heartbeat City and all, you know, these big records he had made and had yeah. learned all the parts and a couple of the Huey Lewis tracks and all that stuff. So I kind of took it on as a challenge and, and the tours I had done, I, you know, I'd, I had developed my ear so much from playing so much, so many types of music mm. through the years that I could pull off, you know, the country licks and, and play that role even though we had nine of us, we had other guys that could play as well. I, I kind of fit his lead guitar role to play the Brent Mason, the country, the chicken yeah. picking stuff on on the stuff that needed that, but then give him the Dan Huff slick stuff or whatever was needed. So I, I could do the broad strokes of country and it, and it worked, you know, and that's sure. what he, but that's what those records are. They're not, there's not that much traditional stuff on them, you know. Hmm. There's some really cool, you know, telly solos and stuff, which are fun and that we learned, but... So you know, I don't know. I guess I, I felt like I fit his what he needed for that season of time to pull off those records, you know. And of course, mentioning some of your other touring and music industry work, you've worked with Kenny Loggins, Elton John. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about some yep. of those other acts. Yeah, Kenny. That was in this. I did a, a year tour with him around 2000. So I was in between Shania tours, Shania Twain tours. I moved from Nashville to L.A. after the first Shania Twain tour. My wife and I decided to go to California and check that out and that music scene. And so that was like a four or five year little stint. But uh, Chris Rodriguez, the guy I mentioned earlier, was touring and working with Kenny and decided one year he wanted to stay home. He had young kids at the time and said, hey, you, you want to do this? And I was home and in L.A. and cool. said, yeah. And it was that was another, woo, Kenny's an amazing musician and great singer. And so I... And I was, you know, when you're the one musician coming in that's a band that's been together a while and you're kind of filling in a, for a guy that is highly respected, it was it was a lot. I think I had a couple of weeks to learn the set, but it, it was a great year, and I learned a ton there, too, vocally. I, I, I love to sing as well and play, and uh, and so I learned a lot from Kenny vocally, and then just, and he was a little looser, you know, he he wasn't more like you got to, he wasn't the kind of guy that wanted it, like the record. He They kind of had a, a live thing going, and mm-hmm. it was a lot of vamping, and that was fun. So I, I got to spread up my wings a little bit on playing wise. So playing cool. some slide and some of that old, you know, logins and Messina stuff. And yeah. I'm all right. And it was fun. Nice. Speaking of equipment, I th- think you and I have to nerd out for a moment. Tell me yeah, about cool. uh, the Brent Barkus guitar rig. You know, tell me, you know, what was your first guitar? And, you know, give me a little insight into that. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, it evolves like I'm sure, you know, you know. I've always been a Strat guy. My first guitar was a Fender Mustang. It was a 60s Mustang, and that was a wow. cool little guitar. I kind of wish that's one of those, you know, have the regrettable sales in your life. That was We one all that have that, you know. We all I have know. That. <laughs> Whether it's a drum kit or whatever, it's like, sure. oh, man. I, I still miss one. my uh, 1959 Gretsch snare drum that I, sno- I, sno- I sold that. Yeah. yeah. That was dumb. I know. So I'm sorry. <laughs> what Go am I ahead. Doing? The Mustang sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that was cool. And then... Um, from there, you know, I just, through college and early years of recording and touring, I don't know, picked up, love strats, I got a couple tellies, 
Les Paul. I always you love the Les Paul for rockier stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking around my studio, just trying to see what's around. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, for recording, obviously, I you know I get into kind of with acoustics like old Gibsons. I've got a few '65 um, wow. guitars I love for the kind of the Beatle era guitars, and then and then I spent a little on the Shania thing. We went to you know we were in Europe a lot. I spent some time in Spain and kind of then for a while kind of got into the flamenco thing. So I've got a few oh, wow. little classical things that I love in flamenco. Um, you know, so I kind of kind of dabble in that. That's another one of my dabbles. I don't consider myself a you know a Spanish guitar player or anything, but I love mm. playing with nails and playing nylon string too. So and then you know other gear like amps. I've been through all the all kinds of you know Marshalls and Voxes and heads and stuff. And then yeah. you know for a while it was the big racks. We had those early on, and then then everybody got anti rack. And we early and then we got into Nirvana kind of phase. So we did pedals, you know. Sure, yeah. So I had my Seattle rig for a while, and. <laughs> and then uh, the, everybody wanted to get away from the 80s thing, so we all went Seattle and did that. And now, you know, now it's kind of more of a mix. I've, I've got pedals and a few rack gears. And, you know, and we talk, you know, everything's, I love being in the box. I'm I'm a technology yeah, guy, so sure. if I can use plugins on, you know, and I love some of the software guitar stuff and from Waves and all that, I mean, I just... I'm more about speed. I mean, you know, it depends on the session, but if mm-hmm. it's uh, something I'm doing for an ad agency or something, you know, I, I, I'm all about just plugging into a computer and getting some great tones and working that way too, so. Cool. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for part two of The Conversation. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com and by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, audio engineer J.P. Conk, senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.